We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the College Football Hall of Fame. The last two games of his career at UCLA were wins over hated crosstown rival USC and number one Ohio State in the Rose Bowl. Fast forward 13 years, and the last game of his NFL career was a Super Bowl win over the Bengals. And his last play was one of the most iconic in league history. 20 halfback curl X up. Joe Montana to John Taylor with under a minute to go to win it all. In between, two more Super Bowls, four All-Pro picks, and three Pro Bowls. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Randy Cross. Randy, welcome. Ah, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Randy. Well, um, as, as the intro would suggest, there's a lot to get to. So... Uh, so we'll, we'll jump right into it. Um, I'm kind of interested. So you're born in Brooklyn, but you, but your, your dad's an actor, and it seems that you're raised out in Southern California. Uh, you go to Crespi Carmelite High School, which I should point out right away, it's in Encino, California. You're my second guest from Crespi Carmelite. Um, I had Rick Dempsey, the uh, former okay. Warriors, catcher on, yeah. uh, who, was, uh, who was great, probably just a little bit before your time. Yeah, I think he was class of 68. Might have been the first full graduating class at my high school. Okay. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of when you moved out to LA, what that was like. Your dad was an actor. Tell me, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a, a unique path for a pro football player. Not everybody's dad was an actor. Tell me about no, it. No, it's unusual. Um, yeah. I mean, my dad was, he actually met my mom in LA after getting out of the Marines in about 45, 46, about 46. Um, he went in the merchant Marines for a couple of years and had a very colorful career in the West coast of central and South America. Um, and then had a friend, uh, by the name of Jerry Milton, who wanted to be an actor. And he convinced my dad to go with him to this interview because he was meeting with an agent. Well, long story short, the agent's secretary was my mom. And that's when they met. And they were married like six months later. 
Um, and the TV business for all intents and purposes was, it was basically live. It was obviously, we're talking black and white days back in about 58 or so, 57, 58. Um, or no, not 57, 58, we're talking 53 or so. Um, so got to go back, got to go to New York, do that. And also did some Broadway. And um, then in about, about the same time as the Dodgers and Giants went from New York to San Francisco and L.A., uh, we went to Los Angeles because the TV business basically went to Los Angeles and all those studios that were there just for TV, for movies, basically looked around and went, you know, we could probably make a pretty good amount of money doing some of this TV stuff. Um, so we became a, you know, Southern California based from then on. And he did, he did really well. I mean, our, our running joke in our family, when he come home, he, I mean, we had seven kids. So we had a big dining room table and uh, he'd announce he got a job and everybody'd be happy. And first question was always, do you die? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> back then it was, you were a good guy or a bad guy, no matter what the movies or no matter what the show was. Um, so he was usually either a heavy, which is like, you know, a mob guy or something, or an Indian, American Indian. Um, so it was a logical question to ask if he die, if he dies, and he usually did. And um, he also had a TV series in the '60s by the name of the Blue Angels. So that that ran for I think three years, and that was that was a good that was a fun time. That was in the early '60s, but um, I don't know. It was you, you grew up kind of around your dad's friends and some of your dad's friends were pretty colorful and you know some of my dad's friends were very well-known names um but i never got the bug i used to i grew up reading lines with my dad like he'd bring a script home and he'd say okay you are this and i'm gonna do this so i'd read lines with him and he'd get all mad he goes now you gotta put a little something into it <laughs> um so but i did that i never really got the urge for that business. And I think a lot of it was born of most actors, you know, in, in LA, most actors are called waiters, but you know, <laughs> it, but most actors sit and wait. They're waiting for the agent to call. They're waiting for the production company to call. They're waiting for somebody to call about a job. Um, and that, that can be a pretty destructive thing mentally and in a lot of other ways, you know, substance abuse and things like that, but sure. it's a rough, it's a rough business. Um, and it got my dad some, but, yeah. uh, it was, um, it, it gave me, I got enough of a taste of it kind of from that side of it. Cause he wasn't a gigantic star to kind of go, you know what? I don't know. I don't think I want to do that stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, understood. And so, and so obviously your, your path is athletics and you're you're at Crespi Carmelite uh, Catholic School, and you're you know unsurprisingly uh, you know kind of an all CIF uh, you know kind of football player. You're also a shot putter, and you you in in the CIF uh, which is you know the state high school league, you finish uh, third your junior year. Your senior year you win uh, the shot put title, and you you throw the you throw it over the shot like you know sixty six feet and change. You beat a guy named Terry Albritton who would hold the world record like two years later. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that, how you became a shot putter. Yeah, it was totally by accident. Being at Crespi was, excuse me, totally by accident. My uh, my dad decided 
uh, I was having some some uh, social issues in school. Let's put it that way. Uh, yes, growing plates. Uh, and he decided I needed to go to a Catholic all boys high school. I immediately said, "No way! I don't want to be a priest." Um, and I lost the argument, and I figured I'd get him because I'd sandbagged the entrance exam, and I totally guessed on all the questions and I got like a 92%. So not only did I screw myself that I had to go, I, I did at least that first semester or so, I was in the upper echelon classes and I, I did really didn't belong there. Um, but it was, it, it was a great place. I had some unbelievable coaches. I had a guy named Bill Leeds was the athletic director and the head track coach um, who was really influential you know, sports wise and just somebody you could sit down and you could talk to about anything sports or, you know, anything that was happening to you. Um, and Harry Welch, who's a really well-known football name in Southern California. He's in the, uh, he's in the state high school hall of fame. That's going to be at the Rose bowl. Um, hmm. he was, he was incredibly successful, but he was also a great shot put coach. And I had him the first two or three years of my high school career. And it made a huge difference. And he was also a, a, my JV coach, my freshman coach. Um, he was around, I think, initially in my junior year. Um, but he and Steve Butler, who was a former UCLA player, and Mo Friedman, who was another UCLA, they both played on the 66 Rose Bowl team. Mm. Um, they were so fundamentally based. And so, I mean, it was about footwork. It was about fundamentals. It was about all the, you know, angles and explosion and acceleration and feet and everything. Um, and that's just how I, whether I was throwing the shot or playing football, that's, that was, that was normal for me. Sure. And I didn't, I didn't come to realize how abnormal that was until I got to college and then into the NFL where from a fundamental standpoint, you'd look at some of these guys and go, what an amazing athlete, but you can't do that <laughs> kind of stuff. Oh, that's funny. So, and, and so you're living in LA and, and I've, I've, I've heard you say it before growing up, you rooted for two teams, UCLA and whoever was playing USC that week. Um, mm -hmm. And so obviously UCLA has got to be on your short list. I'm curious, were you looking at USC at all? Um, and I know you were also looking at Nebraska. Were you looking at anybody else? Looking at anybody? I was, else? I was briefly looking at SC. Um, I was recruited by a gentleman by the name of Marv Goo, who was a very, you know, very prominent defensive line coach, great recruiter for the Trojans. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he tried. I just couldn't get over the fact who, who it was. Right. Uh, I mean, they, they were playing really, really well. and But it came down to – Came out of Nebraska. Tom Osborne was the offensive coordinator then for uh, Bill Devaney. Okay. And he was recruiting me. He recruited Southern California and um, Texas and Alabama. And they were all, you know, pretty high profile programs. But UCLA and Texas were the only ones that said it was okay to do track and throw the shot and play football. Because, okay. you know, it's no coincidence that track season happens to coincide with spring football. <laughs> so most football coaches aren't real crazy about, you know, football players playing something else during their, you know, what they usually 
consider to be from a fundamental standpoint their most important time of the year. So sure. But I ended, you know, I ended up going to UCLA and it was a it was a great decision for me. Um it was a little rocky couple of years to start with, but you know, it was uh it was fun. It really was. And it was it was not see Nebraska made no bones about it. Tom Tom Osborne told me, look, you're gonna spend your first year in two places, the weight room and a dining hall. Mm-hmm. He says, and you're going to lift and we're going to put weight on you and you're going to eat. And we're going to put weight on you. You're going to get bigger and stronger. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I wasn't a fan of lifting. I, I, I mean, I told, I told him that up front. Um, and I, it, as it would come to pass, I didn't lift until my second year in the NFL. Okay. When I kind of hit me that I might want to start doing that, but okay. yeah, the recruiting process was, it was fun. I, I don't know how many schools I was recruited by. I, I I don't want to be an idiot and say most of them, but most of the ones I'd ever heard of recruited me. Yeah. Well, if you were talking to Alabama, Texas, Nebraska, USC, and UCLA, that's <laughs> that's pretty much you know kind of a top oh, ten list right there. And, and and Notre Dame, but I cut that one in the in the in the nub. I mean, initially, right? They they sent me the mail and they the coach started calling and whatnot, and I said, you know what? I just spent four years in a Catholic all boys high school. I am not going to a Catholic all boys college. I don't care how close St. Mary's is. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's funny. And, and so you get to UCLA and uh, Pepper Rogers is the coach who would, who would ultimately leave after your sophomore year to go to Georgia tech, which is his alma mater. The first game at UCLA, you guys beat number one, Nebraska. It's kind of funny. It kind of bookends your career. First game of your high of your college career, you beat number one Nebraska, and as I mentioned in the open, the last game you beat number one Ohio State. Um, now freshman year, I get the impression that you didn't see a lot of the field, but uh, or you weren't starting at least. Uh, yeah. But what was it like, you know, kind of playing Nebraska, who hadn't lost in three years? It was it was kind of surreal. I mean, that was the place I was going to go, right? Um, and they were. They were bigger than us. They were stronger than us. They were fast. I mean, they were everything. They were they were an amazing football team. Um, we just caught them in the opener in a bad spot, and we had a kicker named Efren Herrera, sure. who later kicked for the Cowboys, um, who was clutch as hell. And he hit a field goal right at the end, and we ended up beating him. And it was uh, it was something. It was it was very very special. Of course, fast forward to the next opener, we had to go to Nebraska. And they had a little butt whipping for us out there. They had revenge on their mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and obviously, you know, you're playing at UCLA. So there's a bunch of guys who are going to play in the pros with you guys, like Fred McNeil, Fulton Kuykendall, Wendell Tyler, who'd become a, a teammate of yours. Um, the quarterbacks, uh, early on, Mark Harmon, obviously a famous actor, and uh, a guy who was a contemporary of yours, John Shara. Uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of, of them, you know, especially, you know, tell me a little bit about Mark Harmon. Um, he was about the, the most unaffected sort of rich, famous kid I'd ever met having yeah. been in the business, having been in the business. I mean, he could, he could give two dams about, I mean, his dad was the Heisman trophy winner from the university of Michigan. Sure. And he was also an actor and his mom was a very famous actress. And his dad announced announced games, so I mean, you knew who he was. 
didn't sure. didn't phase him one little bit. I mean, my, I, I remember my sophomore year, about the second or third game of the year, we played at Michigan State, and they had a big defensive end by the name of Greg Shalm. And, you know, we're running the triple option and he's got the ball in the fullback's belly and it comes out and he's just going to go towards the next option. And this this big defensive end is just steaming at him. And Mark just gets the ball off to Kermit Johnson and Kermit runs for like 15 yards or something. Um, And he just he just splatters Mark and he stands over him. He's standing over him, looking down at him and I'm helping him up. Markets up, and the guy looks at him and goes, "So you're the Heisman Trophy candidate." Huh? And Harmon looks at him and goes, "Well, don't believe everything people read to you." <laughs> but but he, he he was he was a great a great a great teammate, a really good option quarterback, um, and a hell of an actor, as it turned out. Yeah. That's a great line, by the way. Don't believe everything everybody reads to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so then after your sophomore year, uh, Dick Vermeil comes in and and obviously goes on to, you know, kind of legendary career. This is his first like high profile head coaching job before obviously the mm-hmm. NFL. Um, and he comes in. What's your first impression of him? And and I also have to ask, the staff he put together is amazing. So it's Terry oh, yeah. Don- who's, you know, would become the UCLA coach and then an NFL coach and, and obviously uh, was a UCLA guy. Uh, Jim Mora, who would obviously have a ton of success in the NFL with the Saints and then the Colts. Rod Dauhauer is your offensive coordinator, who ultimately becomes a disciple of um, Don Coriel um, and, uh, and and Dick Tomey, who coaches Arizona. So you, yeah. guys all, you have a hell of a staff there. Um, and the, the first year with Vermeil is not great. You guys are fourth in the Pac-8. Um, but what was your impression of him when he came in? Um, well, the first thing is he, he kind of made coffee nervous. He was extremely intense. Sure. Extremely focused. He had one of those, he, he was one of those guys that almost looked like he was looking through you when he was looking at you. Right. Um, and he knew exactly where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. And there was no, there was no mistaken. I mean, he was going to be successful. Right. If it, you know, even if it killed him or you, um, he was going to, he was going to be successful. And he had, like I said earlier about some of my high school coaches, and it's something that I I came to so deeply believe in um, from a fundamental standpoint, you know, you can, you can outwork and you can out fundamental opponents you can go into games against people that are physically better than you and because you can outwork them and because you're going to be of better fundamentals you're going to beat them and and they're not even going to know what hit them until later on to look at it and go, oh i wasn't doing this this and this but yeah he, he was a big believer in a lot of that and he he sowed an attitude in an atmosphere of family and you knew he and his wife carol I mean, they literally, they loved you. I mean, my parents were, my mom was still getting Christmas cards from Dick Vermeil and Carol Vermeil, you know, before she passed away. And she didn't pass away until sometime in, the, you know, 2010 or so, 2012. 40 years of still getting Christmas cards. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, but that was that was that was them. They yeah. really cared, and that's one thing that's kind of fun to look at. If you see people get together from a Dick Vermeil team, they will sincerely like each other. Yeah, if not love each other, and Dick is right there in the middle of it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and then and it it all came together one year later. You guys are you're a senior, and you guys win the Pac eight. And your first three years, I hate to rub it in, but you hadn't beaten USC yet. So, mm -hmm. and you guys play Ohio State early in the year and they kind of trounce you. They beat you 41-20 and they're number two in the country. Um, you play USC. Offensively, it's a very weird game. You guys, you guys generate like over 400 yards of offense, but you also put the ball on the ground 11 times and, and you lose eight of them. Um, and yet you still end up beating them, which obviously uh, you know tells you something. Um, and then, and then you go to the Rose bowl and now Ohio state's number one and you beat them. And Wendell Tyler has a late 54 yard touchdown run to seal it. Obviously you're on the field. You've been a starter for three years at that point. What's that like, uh, when you watch him, Wendell Tyler, you know, kind of bust one down the field and, uh, you know, to kind of seal the Rose bowl. Yeah. The, the, the two guys that they didn't quite know what to do with besides John Shire. Uh, our quarterback was Wendell at running back because Wendell was fast. I mean, he was as fast as anybody in the game, but sure. he was also really strong. So he could run inside. So you'd run some of these halfback dives in the, we ran the Houston Veer. Mm. So the halfback was either taking pitches if it was going away or dives. And this is a, the one, one he scored on was a halfback dive right up the middle. Right. Um, and that was Wendell in a nutshell. He could, he could, he was strong. He was physical. He was fast. Um, it was, it, it was, it was a, uh, let's just say a very enjoyable experience. Yeah. Uh, Rose Bowl wise. It was topped off by with probably still 30, 40 seconds to go. Um, Woody Hayes starts walking across the field to congratulate for meal. And I'm standing on the sideline right by coach. And Dick kind of looks around and looks at, you know, Carl Peterson or one of his guys or another, another great, great name off that sub, off his staff. Sure. It would be the GM and the, you know, the chiefs and all that for about 20 years. Um, he, he looks at, looks at Carl and says, what do I do? And he goes, I'd go shake his hand. <laughs> Don't leave him hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know. He basically just said, all right, that's it. Let's go. Uh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and back, that, back, the next day, Shara and I are on the plane to the Hula Bowl over in mm -hmm. Hawaii. Sure. And his hand comes, we're in first class, and it's, these two hands come over the back back of the seats. And they've got two beers, and it's got two beers in each hand. And we turn around and look, and it's Barry Switzer, who was the head coach of Oklahoma, who, because we beat Ohio State, won the national championships that year. <laughs> He goes, boys, boys, this is just the start. These are on me the rest of the week. <laughs> That's funny. And I could totally see that too. <laughs> uh, and, and that was a funny year for you. Just one last thing on UCLA. That was a funny year for you because you guys had so many good offensive linemen that you had your first unit and you played, I, I think you played guard. And then the second unit would come in and you'd slide over to center and four new guys would come in. So you were just constantly, you always hear about D lines trying to have fresh legs and, you know, bringing in six, seven, eight guys. You don't hear about offensive lines that often doing that. You guys did. Obviously it worked. 
Yeah. I mean, we had nine guys. Um, I think eight of us played at one time or another in the NFL. It's amazing. So we're getting ready to play, you know, go to a season. It was actually Terry Donahue's idea that we would just wear people down. We sure. keep keep both lines fresh. First line be in for two series. Second line be in for two series. First line for two series. And that's back. I mean, we were averaging some stupid amount of yards. Um, my my sophomore year, we almost averaged 400 yards a game rushing. In fact, we did average 400 yards a game rushing. Yeah, well, your sophomore year, I looked it up. You guys had six games over 50 points. That's over half the season. You guys put up 50 or more. That's just insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, and then so then so then you get drafted by the 49ers now. And it, it's interesting, like one thing that is kind of self-evident to sports fans anyway, but man, does consistency, you know, at the top of the organization matter, you know, at the ownership level, GM, coaches, et cetera. It's, you know, funny how that oftentimes leads to success. Well, you lived two different lives with the 49ers, as far as I could tell. I mean, my God, the year before you get there, the coach is Dick Nolan. They let him go. So your rookie year, it's Monty Clark, who's a great offensive line coach, right? He was the kind of the architect of that O-line for the Dolphins um, yeah. you know, in the early 70s that led to, you know, that insane running game. Um, he's brought in. He's in for one year. So Dick Nolan was the coach the year before. Now it's Monty Clark. As a, as a young offensive lineman, what's your first impression of Monty Clark when you come in? Um, yeah, well, I remember I said I didn't lift weights. We uh... – I get I get drafted and they you know they call me up and say hey, look go to LAX in the morning there's a ticket there for you come on up we're gonna have a press conference in the afternoon so I do I come up and I, I show up at the facility I'm in a Hawaiian shirt um, I've got hair a little longer than it is now uh, I'm in jeans and flip flops. And I, I didn't know what the press conference was. It was like, what, what am I doing? Um, so the next day, we, we're going to have mini camp, and I'm going to get tested. Right. So I do uh, one chin-up. I do two pull-ups. I do two reps at two and a quarter. And I'm walking, <laughs> out, of the, I'm walking out of the weight room, and Monty Clark's standing there, and he is just giving me a death stare. I right. mean, it feels like laser beams at me. And he get, I get closer, closer and closer to him. I look at him and go, hey, coach. He goes, what do you mean, hey, coach? You trying to get me fired? <laughs> I stood on the table. I had to have you. I had to draft you. And I went, hey, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I, I've never lifted weight, so I'm not real surprised at what happened in there just now. <laughs> he goes, well, you better run your ass off at the 40. And I ran up running like a 475 wow. um, 40, which for alignment is pretty good. Um, and he was much happier after that, but yeah, I mean, I was uh, back then too. He didn't want linemen bigger than 250. Mm. Those, those, those great dolphin lines weren't very big. No. Um, and he wanted linemen on the smaller size on the smaller side. So, uh, that whole year was, we were eight and six. We almost made the playoffs. Yep. And, and then Eddie DeBarlo bought the team. Right in 77 and he hired a guy named Joe Thomas who was a infamous uh, architect of turnarounds. He'd done it in Baltimore. He'd done it in a couple other places. Um, he didn't do it in San Francisco. It, it was, yeah. You know, like you said, you, you started saying, I mean, I, 
I had one coach my fresh first year, one coach my second year, two coaches my third year. And Bill Walsh was my fifth head coach going into my fourth season in 79. It's incredible. Yeah. And and Joe Thomas, that's an amazing one because I, I knew some of the history, but I, I looked up a little bit more of it. I mean, he was he kind of helped build the beginning of that great Vikings team that was being put mm-hmm. together in the late 60s, but then was gone. Starts building those Dolphins teams. But right before they go on their Super Bowl wins, he's gone. Uh, you know, a contract dispute with Joe Robbie, I think. And then helps, you know, build those Colts teams, you know, the Burt Jones Colts, but then is gone. So it's like he's he's definitely got the knack, or at least did. But he also, there's something that kind of poisons the water a little bit. And, you know, all of a sudden he's gone. So, yeah, he comes in with you guys. Yeah. And gets rid of Monty Clark and brings in a guy named Ken Meyer, who's not his first pick. Ken's gone in a year. Um, and... Uh, and the one thing I would ask about the Ken Meyer year was Howard Mudd was your offensive line coach. And he mm-hmm. is a guy, I mean, you were actually very fortunate. You were surrounded by great O-line coaches. Um, he's a guy who Peyton Manning absolutely credits with, you know, the success they had in, in with the Colts. Um, tell, tell me about, you know, Howard Mudd in your you know stint with him. Howard, Howard is one of the best offensive line coaches that's ever breathed oxygen. Right. Just he, he knows how to talk about that, those positions in a way that makes sense to anybody. And it works like a charm. Sure. I mean, if you you listen to Howard, you're going to A, get better and you're going to beat people's asses. Right. He's he's something else. I, I had I had Howard and then for a long period of time, Bob McKittrick, who I couldn't say enough nice things about. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and when Ken Meyer is is then canned, Joe Rob, uh, Joe Thomas rather brings in Pete McCulley, who I think everybody knew was the guy he wanted to begin with, but he couldn't get him because he was under a contract somewhere else. Washington, Washington for the Redskins. Washington, that's right. George Allen wouldn't let him talk to uh, to the 49ers. Uh, so he he brings him in. He starts off one and eight. So this guy who he wanted so desperately, he fires halfway through the season. And one of the great quotes I've ever read Somebody says, are you surprised you got canned after nine games? And he said, no, I haven't been surprised since I found out that ice cream cones weren't filled all the way to the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, there you go. (laughs) So, so, so he's gone. So they bring in Fred O'Connor. He, you know, goes one and six. So that's a fun year for you guys. Um, And then they bring in, and then they bring in Bill Walsh. And and the one question I want to ask about that year with the two coaches, OJ Simpson's on the team. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't have to go into all the post-career stuff, but I wonder, they had brought in Plunkett a year or two before. They bring in Simpson. These are Bay Area guys who, you know, have been elsewhere, but have also been beat up a lot elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And you're just, they're just giving away first-round draft picks. Are you guys sitting in the locker room going, why are we taking these guys who are like in their 10th year? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Plunkett, you could see, but, you know, he could still, because he could still throw the ball. We didn't sure. have much of a line. Right. Um, he was reunited with Gene Washington, his old buddy from Stanford, the wide receiver. Sure. But otherwise, we didn't have much to help him out. And we proceeded to get him beat to death. Right. Um, so there, he get, you know, Joe lets him go. He ends up going to the Raiders and you know, he sit basically sits out a year healing. Right. right. And then promptly <laughs> in 80 wins the national wins the world championship. 
yeah. uh, with the Raiders. He was he was an amazing quarterback. The one yeah. that really didn't make any sense was OJ. And I knew it. You know, you knew that it was it was done because of the PR, because of the name, and it was juice and you know the old Hertz commercials and all that stuff. Sure, but his knee was terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have a bad knee. It's another thing when you got a bad knee, it's so bad. As soon as you get in shorts, everyone looks at it and goes, uh, and, and that's what he had. He, he he had Baker's cysts in the back of his knee, and he had problems with his car. I mean, he had all kinds of issues. Sure. So he was just a shadow of what he had been. And he had a few, you know, spurts, good runs, and a couple good games and whatnot, but he was never, especially for the King's Ransom, he ended up getting traded for yeah, yeah, a lot of number ones and a number two and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, but but it's interesting. I always love watching like how a team gets built. So when, when you had come in in 76, basically the only guy on the roster who would be around when you guys start winning Super Bowls, it's Willie Harper, linebacker, and Keith Vonhorst, tackle, and you come in, right? So you're kind of the first three pieces of what would become the run. Um, and starting in 78, all of a sudden, guys like Freddie Solomon is added to the roster. John Ayers and Fred Quillen come in on the line. Uh, Dan yeah. Bullen, linebacker. Like, it's start, like the Ayers, roster. Ayers actually, Ayers actually got drafted the same year as me. Oh, is that right? But he, came but, out of what, he came out of West Texas. Okay. Got cut, the, got cut early in camp that year and got picked up. He was, he was with us in 76. Okay. He got, okay. The, he got the full experience, too. <laughs> And then, and then, so yeah, so then in 79, uh, Walsh comes in, he's the head coach and the general manager. And it's an interesting year. You guys are two and 14. So obviously on paper, terrible 12 games of those 14 that you lost, you were winning at some point in the game. So like something was happening, like you guys were better than two and 14 would suggest. Um, yeah. and two guys are drafted, obviously famously in the third round, Joe Montana. And then later in the draft, Dwight Clark, big receiver out of Clemson, um, and yeah, as you mentioned a second ago, Bob McKittrick comes in as the O-line coach um, and he would be there for the next 20 years. So he's your coach, you know, for the rest of your career. Um, and Walsh said, you've been a center up until that point. And Walsh and I guess Walsh and McKittrick decide you're going to be a right guard because of your speed, I think, right? Yeah, they won, they won the, um, they, there was a famous play that the Chargers ran and then we were going to start running the same thing. It was called 18-19 Bob. Okay. It was back. It's back on backer, but it was it was pulling guards, and they wanted to run powers, and they wanted wanted to run counters, and they wanted to run, but they needed guards that could run, and that was never a problem for, especially for myself and John Ayers. So, sure. yeah, and that was fine not being 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 the center. Okay. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because you always wonder, like in that situation, are you like, no, 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 this is what I do, or you were you were fine? Yeah. Well, 70, 78. We played against, um, I can't remember who it was, the eighth game of the year, I broke my wrist. Okay. So I'm wearing a cast on my wrist for the ninth game. And in the ninth game, I break my ankle. Mm. So I get a reprieve for the rest of that 2-14 and 14 year. I'm, a, I'm on injured reserve watching from the stands. Yeah. You know, drinking, drinking beer and joining the hecklers. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the next – first person I met with you know was Bill that's the first thing he said to me not even two minutes into the conversation you know love love you as a fall player blah 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 um but you're going to be a guard from now on if that's okay I was like yeah it's fine shoot sure I knew, well, I knew the offense he wanted to run 
Yeah, and it's an interesting era because it's there's a lot of teams employing the three four at that point. So a center, you've got you know a beast above you. If you're a guard, a lot of times you you don't have a cap on you. So there's there's a little probably a little bit more freedom, a little bit more latitude. Is that a fair observation? Uh, yeah, you know if it wasn't three four back then, it was either the over and the under. So okay. The bubbles, a lot of the bubbles, and that was all predicated on the lineman holding up the D lineman, offensive lineman. And the linebackers being able to run to the ball. Okay. Um, and which made having people that could run very important, especially once you got out towards the perimeter or outside the tight end or so. Right. Okay. And so, so, and that team, and you also bring in uh, to kind of run football operations or personnel, John McVeigh, who had been kind of a coach, you know, at a few different spots in the league. Um, but he would obviously go on a great run with you guys, five championships with the 49ers. Obviously, his grandson, you know, won the Super Bowl with the Rams two years ago, Sean. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you're starting to pick up pieces. Dwight Hicks comes in as a safety, and Dwayne Board is added to the offensive line, a uh, defensive line, and even like kind of role player types like Lenville Elliott is added to the to the backfield. Um, you know, just a, just a couple of guys here, a couple of guys there, and then um, and and obviously Montana and Clark. So obviously things are starting to change the next year you're six and 10 and that's when Montana becomes a starter. He, he kind of pushes past Steve DeBerg and, you know, he had obviously had this kind of very up and down career at Notre Dame wins a national title, you know, the famous cotton bowl comeback against Houston, but also would be benched for games at a time um, by Dan Devine. So like when he comes in, are you guys, you know, when did you kind of first think, Oh my God, there's something here. Did it take a while or was it pretty evident right away? Pretty much from the jump, hmm. watching him work this offense. Okay. In fact, I remember early in training camp, you know, we, we started watching practice tape, uh, practice film back then. Um, and we were running plays and stuff. And Bob McKittrick goes, hey, turn that light on. Stops the, the, the projector. And he looks at everybody and he goes, now, you got a guy here running this offense at 16. I hope you appreciate what you're looking at. Hmm. He goes, because there's no way he should be able to do half the stuff he's doing. And if you guys can take care of him, there's no telling how good you can be as a team. Because he's that good. And we're all like, oh, cool. All right. Good. <laughs> you know? um, and he was right. I mean, but you could see it from the very first days of practice. And we didn't have, you know, back in that 1980 team, um, God, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say during that training camp, we went through like 30 something defensive backs. I mean, guys that were, you know, more than two, three guys that were there for one lunch and one practice and were gone the next day. Yeah. Um, they just kept rotating bodies, just trying to find somebody, um, which shouldn't have been a big surprise as much of an emphasis on the DBs there was in 81. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, again, teams, you know, obviously famously the 74 Steelers have that, you know, crazy draft. And I think it was like the 82 bears had a crazy draft. Interestingly, 81 is all the D backs, but 80 for you guys, you got eight guys who would be starters in the Super Bowls. I mean, that's just, it's, it's Charlie Young at tight end. It's Earl Cooper, um, uh, Jim Stuckey, Keena Turner, Jim Miller, the punter of all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
conference pillars uh, comes in. I mean, like, you know, either through the draft or, you know, one or two of them picked up elsewhere. Like, that's just yeah. an incredible haul. You know, Young came in from the Rams, but um, it's an incredible haul. And that becomes, you know, kind of transformational. Uh, it's the last time you guys wouldn't win 10 games or more for 20 years, X strike years. Um, yeah. So obviously something's happening. The 81 team, I, I love this. 81, you guys are three and two. And you're playing Dallas, right? And at this point, Dallas has been the NFC, you know, kind of the dominant team in the NFC. You guys are playing Dallas. The week before, you sign a Hall of Fame defensive lineman from San Diego, Fred Dean. And I have seen clips of both you and Ronnie Lott talking about your first impressions of Fred Dean. And it's some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen. Tell the story about coming in the week of the Dallas game and you're in the weight room and there's Fred Dean. Yeah, well, he's sitting on. I wanted, I wanted to see. By this point, I'm actually lifting. Okay. So I go in the weight room. I want to lift. Dino's laying on the bench, and he's got a cool a cigarette in his mouth, and he's smoking. And I walk in. I kind of sit down on the other bench, and I go, Dino, let me know when you're done. I'd like to do a little lift. And he kind of looks, gets up, and. I felt like lifting, but I figured I'd lay down until I got over it. But, <laughs> you know, keep smoking, gets up, walks out of the room. Um, <laughs> he was, and in that game against Dallas, I think he had like three and a half sacks. Yeah. Um, and probably had six pressures. Um, he, he tortured the Cowboys all by himself. Yeah, it was it was an incredible game. And, you know, early in that year, the, probably the, the game that was the most pivotal one for us might have been the Pittsburgh game, which was before that Dallas game, because we played Pittsburgh and, we, and they had beaten the crap out of us once in Pittsburgh in 77 and again in 78. So we played him and that was the end of the pretty much the end of the run for a lot of those Super Bowl guys. Uh, the 70s team, but it was still Stallworth, it was still Swan, it was still Bradshaw, it was still Mean Joe and all that. Sure. And we beat them pretty good. Um, and that's when the de our defense really kind of announced themselves because Carl Williamson hit Stallworth and it looked like he killed him. Mm. He ended up puncturing along with a rib and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff like that. But back when DBs over the middle could actually hit receivers without getting a penalty or a fine. Right. Um but that that was a moment that was very memorable as far as, you know, as an offensive team who hadn't had a defense <laughs> in a while. Yeah. Um, you know, you got on the plane going back from that one going, hey, wow, this could be pretty cool. Right? We, could, yeah. we could play. And then, you know, we play Dallas and just smoke them. Yeah. And Dean, and, and uh, Lot was saying, you know, that, that Dallas game. Yeah, and I was watching the clips. I mean, Dean is like folding Danny White this way and bending him backwards this way. I mean, it was, it was brutal to watch. And at halftime, you know, he's got two sacks. He's been on the team for like 10 minutes. And he's walking in the locker room and he pulls out, like you said, he pulls out a cool in the locker room at halftime. And Lot's like, what are you doing? And he's like, looks at looks at Lot. And Lot's like, I realized, you know, he could tear me apart if he wanted to. Cool. He goes, Fred Dean was cooler than James Dean. That's how cool Fred Dean was. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and to Bill Walsh's credit, and I, I, to this day, I don't know how he did it. He got other teams to almost give him players. Unbelievable. He stole Charlie Young. 
He stole Jack Reynolds. He stole Fred Dean. He stole Louis Kelcher. He stole Gary Big Hands Johnson. I mean, it just kept going and going. I mean, guys would show up and you'd go, yeah, this, this is going to work. Yeah, Russ Francis. Yeah, yeah Russ. Yeah. yeah, so it was it was something. Yeah, and that, and, you know, as you mentioned, Carlton Williamson. So, you know, you'd gotten Dwight Hicks the year, year or two before, and then that draft, it was like, we need D-backs. So it's Lott, it's Carlton Williamson out of Pitt, it's Eric Wright out of Mizzou. And that D-back field, I mean, it's like three rookies and a second or third year guy. I mean, it's just crazy. And and obviously they were great uh, right yep. off the jump, which is crazy. Dwight, Dwight Hicks and his hot licks. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and uh, and one thing, uh, so so obviously you guys go to the playoffs, you beat the Giants, then there's the Dallas game, right? That's the, the catch game. And I just have to, I mean, so much has been made of it. I, I almost don't want to dwell too much on it, but you know, I, I do just have to ask, you know, one or two questions. It's it's third and three from the six yard line. You know, you're you're down, you know, around a minute to go. You need a touchdown. Um, and you know, that play happens where Montana rolls out to the right, he's under pressure, he flings it up there. Was that just an incredible? I mean, it looked like a great adjustment by Clark to start with. Was he throwing it away or was that was that a call? No, no, that was that was the adjustment. I and mean, we had scored on that play the first time we played them. Okay. We ran we ran sprint right option and Freddie Solomon caught the ball in the in the flat there and for a touchdown. Okay. He ran a little in the flat, he kind of slipped, got up, adjusted back. Dwight is up, he's outside on the right. He comes up, he runs across to the, about the goalpost, and his adjustment, if he sees Joe move, is he's got to go back across the field towards him. So, you know. Cowboy fans forever will say that he was throwing that away. He was throwing that where he knew only DC could get it. Right. Um, Cause it was third down. I mean, it, it was, that was fully intentional doing okay. what he did and having played in the off season basketball program with both Dwight and Joe, they could both jump yeah. a lot. I mean, high. So, you know, go him going up and get that didn't surprise anybody. Yeah. I, I interviewed Charlie Waters and he said, he's like, look, Everson Walls had great coverage on him. And he goes, it was just, it's just, you know, Clark's ability. Um, and it's interesting. You say that about Joe Montana. I remember reading once that not only coming out of high school was he recruited by Notre Dame for football. He was recruited by North Carolina state for basketball when they were the defending champs in, uh, in the NCAA. So yeah, he's, <laughs> you might not think it to look at him, but yeah, a hell of a basketball player too. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and it's funny you watch that clip and you know look I've watched a million football games in my life you go on YouTube and watch that clip over and over again that could be the loudest I've ever heard a crowd the reaction to that catch it's it's deafening it's the close end of the stadium so that helps it's it's you listen to it and it's almost jarring how loud it is yeah um, and, and the and the other trivia great trivia thing about that game is. Madden and Summerall would do their first one of their their first big game together in Super Bowl 16, but they didn't do that game. They didn't announce the NFC Championship. That was Jack Buck and Hank Stram. Okay, oh, Buck and Stram were the number one group, but they used Summerall and Madden in the Super Bowl. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and well, and that game, they made you sweat it out because that didn't end the game. <laughs> Danny White starts yeah. moving the ball up the field and he hits Drew Pearson on a laser 
And it, it looks like he's gone. And Eric Wright literally hangs on to his jersey yeah. uh, to bring him down. And then I think today, the- today, today it would have been a horse collar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Um, but brings him down, saves the touchdown. And then like on the next play, I think Jim Stuckey recovers the ball and, and now the game's yeah. over. Pillars, um, pillars hit him and fumbled and Stuckey got the ball. Yeah. And so then, so then that sets up Super Bowl uh, with Bill Walsh again, well, 49ers against the Bengals, but there's some drama there because Bill Walsh True. had been loyal assistant to Paul Brown for years. And when Paul Brown steps down, he doesn't name Walsh the coach. He names Bill Johnson. Fair. Walsh goes and works for uh, Coriel for a year in San Diego. But the bigger, or actually Tommy Prothrow in San Diego. But the bigger deal is it turns out later that Paul Brown, at least this is what I heard, had been kind of bad mouthing Bill Walsh to people who were asking about him as a head coach. So it wasn't just, oh, he picked that guy, not me. He was telling other teams, don't hire this guy. He didn't think he had the makeup to be a head coach, which is, of course, laughable in retrospect. But um, did you did, could you get that sense from Walsh at the time? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he in, in private conversations, he'd mentioned little bits and pieces about, you know, how much he wanted to beat that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't just the, it wasn't just the Bengals. Trust me, it was specific. <laughs> so why he wanted to beat him? Um, you know, he make he he make little comments and jabs in our team meetings, like. They they flew in the same day we did, mm-hmm. but they flew in. We we flew in on an L ten eleven, okay, an old wide wide body. Because earlier that year we had started completely by accident, um, having to take a, a wide body because our charter got broke down. Mm. So we needed a plane, and we went to Washington. Went to Washington, kicked their butts, and after the game. We were all, you know, we're going 747, 747. And Eddie goes, you keep winning, you'll keep flying the big planes. And, you know, <laughs> so we fly to, we fly a big L-1011 into the, uh, to there. I mean, which was great. I mean, a lot of room for us. We could spread out and have a great time. Um, they flew a prop plane from Cincinnati to Detroit. Oh, God. And, and Bill had a field day with that, mentioning, you know, oh, sure. kind of, well, I'm not, I'm not saying they're cheap on the other side, but. <laughs> <laughs> but did you see how they had to wind the propeller to get that thing to take off? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so so now you guys are the Super Bowl champs. And the next year is a strike year. And again, kind of similar to that first year with Walsh, you guys have, well, you have a bad year. You're three and six. But again, it's all like three and four point losses. I mean, the games that you lose are close, but you, you don't make the playoffs. You do pick up Russ Francis, as we talked about, and you get Ronaldo Nehemiah, which is obviously one of those experiments, right? Every now and then a coach, you know, falls in love with like a track guy. What was it like the first time you saw Skeets Nehemiah uh, running his patterns? Uh, he looked like a hurdler. Okay. And and he was fast, really fast. Yeah. So it was one of those things, hey, if, we, if it would work, it would work. But the problem he was going to have, you could tell from the jump, was he was going to have to deal with Ronnie and Eric and Carlton and Dwight and the rest of those DPs. Because yeah. they were, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, brotherly love and hugging going on with those guys. They were beating the crud out of people uh, and intimidating them. And, yeah. yeah, you know, Ronaldo, to his credit, Ronaldo 
did pretty well, but never really quite, you know, was as good as maybe Bill thought he might have been. Yeah, never never had that like Bob Hayes type career that he was probably. Yeah. Um, and then the next year you get out of Nebraska, you get Roger Craig. And that that brings something up because Craig at Nebraska is the blocking back for Mike Rozier. And he's he's effectively a fullback. And it's kind of funny because I interviewed Chuck Foreman. A lot of people don't know that these like rusher receiver types are oftentimes fullbacks. Um, you know, Chuck Foreman was really a fullback in that Vikings offense. Roger Craig for a long time was really a fullback, but the, you know, he'd, you know, kind of swing out and catch passes. Um, and that was something that, that, you know, uh, uh, Bill Walsh really loved. And also the year before, you know, he had picked up Russ Francis. He loved his tight ends. You know, he had Brent Jones and John Frank and Russ Francis. We talked about Charlie Young. Um, Earl Cooper for a while was a, was a tight end. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of that, like, you know, kind of how he's like, you know, picking up his, his chess pieces as it were. Yeah. No, just uh, the offense kept getting better, better and better. 82 was a nightmare that season in general. Yeah. Um, you Thank know, you. It was, a lot of it was, it was a strike. A lot of it was self-inflicted. We might've had a little bit too much fun that off season. Sure. Wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that. Um, and I, and I think from that point on, we had a different relationship with Bill too because he trusted us so much and we kind of burnt that trust by the way we spent, you know, our time in the off season and during the, during the early parts of the season and the strike and everything else. Um, so he would always have come an arm's length relationship with players and whatnot since after that. Hmm. But it was, uh, that season was terrible. It was so atrocious. And but '83, then things started coming back. Then we started winning again, and we started, you know, playing really, really well. And we got to the NFC Championship game. Championship yeah. game. And that was a crazy game. You you guys are down three touchdowns to, to Washington in the fourth quarter, and you come back. It's twenty-one nothing. All of a sudden, it's twenty-one all. But then they get. I guess it was a Mosley field goal late. Yeah, thanks to a couple of interesting pass interference penalties against our guys. Okay. Okay. But they do, but they do they do kick the field goal and, and win and they go on to get smoked by the Raiders. Right. Right. Jim Plunkett again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then and so then that brings about 84, which is there are I think there have been seven teams that have either gone undefeated like the Patriots when they were 16 and 0 um or 15 and 1 in the 16 game era, right? Whatever that was, 40 years or something like that. Yeah. You two won the Super Bowl. You guys in, the, in 84 and the Bears in 85. Obviously the Patriots fall short against the Giants. A few of the other 15 and ones lose. So it's amazing to think seven teams either run the table or go 15 and one, but only two end up winning the Super Bowl that year. Um, so, you know, just kind of showing just how hard it is to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that era is something I'll, I've long maintained were three of the best teams that the league has ever had. The 84 Niners were 18 and one. The 85 Bears were 18 and one. And the 86 Giants were six, uh, 17 and two. Right. And just all three of those teams just dominated opponents and, and each other. We beat yeah. each other to go to, you know, either in championship games or divisional games that we could buy the other one. 
Yeah, that, and and to to get to the Super Bowl against the Dolphins, you guys had to play the Bears. And for a lot of us, that was you know the, it was like the coming out party for the Bears because all of a sudden it's like, whoa, how'd they end up in the NFC Championship game? And that '84, I mean, obviously '85 was their big year. '84, that defense was killer. It was already a mm-hmm. great defense. Um, and so you know, you're an old lineman. You got Steve McMichael and Hampton and Dent and those guys. Uh, you know, what was that like going up against those guys? Well, we, you know, in the, the year before that, 83, we had played them in Chicago. And that's when Buddy Ryan unveiled the 46. Hmm. And when he took all the shots at, at Bill, you know, just making fun of him and stuff like that. Um, and it was, that was a great defense. Amazing talent, but a, and also on a great scheme, which is interesting. You know, there are systems and there are system players but isn't it funny that usually that only pertains to offense because mm-hmm. you don't really, you don't really see that applied on the defensive side. Cause I mean, they had a system that, that 46 and the way they played defense was amazing, but they were doing it with Mike Singletary. And like you said, Hampton and McMichael and Dent and I mean, go down the list, Durson and they, they had some really, really good players. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were one of the I, I I can't remember exactly what he said, but I remember reading Ryan, you know, like you know, kind of his thoughts on it. He basically said, you know, one day I just said, why do we have to react to the offenses? Why can't we just dictate to the like basically call our play? Like we're gonna we're gonna tell you what's gonna happen on this play. You know, we're not mm-hmm. gonna, re- gonna make you react to us. Um, yeah, I mean, how that how that roster and that team only won one world championship? It's amazing. It's yeah. crazy. Because they, they had they had the talent to win three or four. Yeah. I, I always say to people, well, and the craziest thing about that one was two of their starters held out that year, Todd Bell and, and Al Harris. I mean, they, like they could have been better, which is crazy. But uh yeah, and and uh and by now Wendell Tyler's a teammate again, and he's you know rushing for twelve hundred yards and all that. Craig is kind of doing his balance thing. I think 84, he was like six hundred plus yards rushing and receiving. Um and you guys bring in a shot putter, an Olympic shot putter from SMU, Michael Carter, a nose guard, um, who I think threw at 80 feet. Um, what was that, what was it like when he came in? Did you guys ever compare notes as shot putters or was that? Not know, a whole lot. I mean, he threw the 12 pound shot in high school, like 80, 81 feet. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, that's, yeah. and, and you know, he threw the seven, threw the uh, 16 pound shot, like 72, 73 feet. Right. So he was, that was one strong human being. That was, he was really good. And it was, I'm glad he was on our side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was it, was it interesting going up against him in practice sometimes though? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 He made, he made short yards and goal lines challenge. Yeah. Well, and you know, and it's interesting talking about the defense for a second and talking about consistency. Like it, it is amazing. Uh, you know, you think about like the great quarterback head coach tandems through history, you know, going way back, Otto Graham and Paul Brown and, and Lombardi and Starr and Bradshaw and Noel. And, and, and then obviously with you guys, with Joe and Bill, it, it's amazing how, how much consistency, like we talked about way back at the beginning, like your defensive coaching staff, you know, I was just kind of looking at every year, it never changed. It was some combination of Bill McPherson on the line, Seifert, Norbecker on linebackers, Ray Rhodes on the D-backs, uh, Tommy Hart, former teammate, was was one of the coaches. It was like those five guys were there for like 10 years or eight years, something like that. Mm-hmm. 
amazing what consistency will do for you, right? Same schemes, you know, understand the players, understand the coaches. Um, that's just one of those things that just kind of stood out on the page to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of that was, I think, a, a testament to the era. The era was very kind of offense centric. That's why the 85 Bears were such an unusual team. Right. Um, and I'm not sure how many people really appreciated the intricacies of, you know, how good our defense was. And they obviously didn't appreciate that much or they would have hired some of those guys. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it took a while before. Obviously, Seifert just stayed in house, and Ray Rhodes got a big job. But you know, aside from that, yeah, for the most part, that that's mm -hmm. they never were head coaches. Um, Eighty-five Jerry Rice comes along uh, when you know, arguably one of the two or three greatest football players of all time. If if you're able to quantify that, what what's it like when you see Jerry Rice for the first time? Um, pretty crazy. Uh, you know, everyone knows that the story about his forty time in the combine, right? So he gets in a training camp and, you know, we move up to get him and give up this, 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 and whatever. And so we're going, okay, let's see what this kid's got. And first or second play team period, the first practice, Bill comes in there and goes, okay, Jerry, this is going to be a go. Go get it. And he's going against Eric Wright, who we all knew was really fast, like right. on, on the stopwatch, much faster than Jerry. Jerry just blew right by him. Joe led him perfectly, caught it out there on his hands, and he's gone. Touchdown. Everybody's standing going, yeah. <laughs> I like those kind of drives. The heck, <laughs> the, heck, the heck with a little pass to the back and a slant to the receiver. Let's do that more often. Just go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was it was great. And, and he had some early struggles. You know, that's been documented. I mean, he, Drops. Play the Rams, and he drew a few drops in some in some big spots, but he just he erased all that so fast it wasn't funny. Yeah, and um, and and over the next two years, first of all, you guys have another one of those just killer drafts. It's it's Rathman and John Taylor, who obviously we'll talk about in a second. Steve Wallace, Charles Haley, Tim McKayer. I mean, just a crazy draft that again just loads you guys with starters for that next run that you're about to go on. Um, and then in '87. Tampa Bay drafts Vinny Testaverde and all of a sudden Steve Young is available and you guys get him for like not much, like a second and a fourth or something like that. Um, but, you know, you always hear the phrase, you know, if you've got two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. It's a unique situation when you have two future Hall of Fame quarterbacks. But what does that do to a team when you've got, I mean, obviously Joe has won titles for you. So I can only imagine that, you know, there's loyalty there, but you do have Steve Young, a future Hall of Famer. What, what does that do to a team? Yeah. Well, if, you, if you're much of a historian of football, um, look back on the number of times something like that has worked. Right. Not very in a positive way. Yeah, like it's like juggling dynamite. Right. Uh, and they're both lit. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was crazy. It was really crazy. But, you know, and Joe had already just won two Super Bowls. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was ha having a so-so <laughs> career, so-so time at that point. So yeah, right. it was uh, it was nuts. But we, it's he was he, Bill was very straightforward about it, and it wasn't until later on, maybe '87 or so, that you know he pulled Joe a couple times and put in Steve, and um, and then Joe would you know promptly went out in '88, wins the Super Bowl, and '89 wins another Super Bowl. And a lot of that kind of died down. Yeah. 
then he get then he get then he gets splattered ninety against the Giants, and that was sort of the opening. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so yeah, so that eighty eight team. So you guys in eighty seven. Well, one one question about eighty seven. It's a strike year, and mm-hmm. unlike two, a lot of high profile guys are crossing the picket line to include in San Francisco, Roger and Joe. What does that do to a team? Is that is that just one of those things like, hey, you know, we're all men and we make our own decisions, or does that cause a little bit of friction in the locker room? It causes a little friction. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Um, but you know, Bill, both times we had strikes, Bill basically said, he goes, I don't care what you do, but whatever you do, do it as a team. Don't do what we're talking about here. Right. Um but you know it worked out. It worked out just fine. That '87 team was, I think, one of the better teams to ever play that never won a championship. That we get up, we got upset in that divisional round by Minnesota, and rightfully so. They played a great game. Yeah. Um, but that was that should have been another year for a Super Bowl. Yeah. And and you get your revenge the next year because you play the Vikings in the first round of the playoffs and you absolutely wallop them. Uh, and then you go, then it's kind of crazy. You go up to Chicago and you play them and it's like 20 something below zero. You know, you think that's bears weather, right? Here comes a team from Cali. Uh, no, that's, t- that's what they kept telling us. Yeah, right. I'm Bear, sure. Bears weather. <laughs> and you guys win what, 28 to three? I mean, you absolutely kill them. Um, yeah. And that sets up Super Bowl with Cincinnati again. Um, and so, you know, obviously Bill Walsh, I'm still sure, you know, looking forward to, you know, taking it to Paul Brown's team again. Um, but, uh, so the game is it's 16, 13, just over three minutes to go. They've just kicked a field goal to take the lead. Like I said, three minutes to go. And it's a very funny thing. You know, we've all heard the story a hundred times, you know, uh, as the TV timeout is ending, Joe Montana's in the huddle saying, Hey, look, there's John Candy in the stands. You know, first of all, true story. Uh, yeah, he was, he was on the other end in the end zone. Okay. Joe, you know, Joe had been on the sideline with Bill and he comes back into the huddle. We're basically standing in the end zone because the ball's on the eight. Right. And Joe gets in there. It was pretty tense. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of chatter going on. People were a little uptight. And Joe looks down to the end zone. He's kind of looking like this. He goes, hey, H, to Harris Barton, who is uptight. And, and Harris goes, yeah, my wife. <laughs> Joe goes, is that John Candy down there? And everybody kind of turns around and looks. And Harris goes, yeah, that is. Joe goes, how cool is that? All right, let's go. Let's, uh, and he goes into the play. But just it kind of cracked whatever tension there was. It kind of cracked it. And, you know, one of the – because that's another one of those games. You talked about that Ohio State game, uh, the SC game. Uh, my senior year, how many turnovers there were and how many fumbles and how many penalties and – that were, there was a theme in that because that Dallas game in 82, January of 82, was another bunch of turnovers, bunch of penalties. Sure. That, that Super Bowl, Super Bowl 23, might have been the worst game we played that year. Hmm. I mean, they returned a kickoff against us for a touchdown. We, were, we weren't running the ball real well. The offense wasn't functioning that well. Um, I mean, it was a horrendous field. It was terrible because they'd left the pumps on and dried the whole thing out. So it was coming up in big chunks. Yeah, Joe Robbie. But it was it was nasty. It was a ter- it was terrible service. And But we were not playing well. 
Right. So it's one of those games that you remember for the finish, but you don't always remember for, you know, the rest of it around it. Right. But uh, that's it. it's always good to remind people. Yeah. Especially when you're in a, when you're in a sport, you know, it ain't how you start. It ain't the whole body of the work for that day. It's how you finish. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just have to ask the question. So you had announced before the game that this was your last game. Did you, did you know during the season that it was your last year or like, when did you actually make that announcement? Probably I made the announcement at the Wednesday press conference before the game. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I had, I had pretty much maybe around the divisional round. I've got a, I've got a picture um, somewhere here in my office uh, of me on the sideline against the Vikings. I think it was the Vikings. And I'm looking around the stadium like this towards the end of the game. And I remember looking around going, you know, this might be the last time you're ever here on the sideline. Oh, at the stick. Because I, I was thinking about walking away. Right. You know, if we do, you know, if we win this next one, and if we get it, that I might do it. Yeah. So then you're on this drive, and the drive is just going great, right? Rice here, Rice there, Taylor here, Craig up the middle. And all of a sudden, the call comes in, 20 halfback curl X up. And, you know, Montana rears back, fires it, hits Taylor as he's, you know, kind of vaulting out of the back of the end zone. Tell me about that feeling. I mean, it's just got to be the greatest feeling. That's the last play of your career. Yeah. I mean, you heard about jumping high. People thought Dwight Clark jumped high. You look at that tape from the end zone, you see how high John Taylor jumped after he caught that ball. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he was going in the stands. <laughs> yeah. 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 Actually, actually, for a trivia question, he jumped into the arms of a pretty famous announcer. Guy that did it in NFL football for about 30, 35 years. Don Crickey. Oh, Don sure. Crickey was NBC did that Super Bowl. John Don Crickey standing in the end zone. John Taylor kind of jumps into his arms. That's who he came down on when oh, he uh, when he jumped like that. But yeah, that play that was. And again, it was kind of like the Dallas game. Um, we all remember that play. But it wasn't like there was no time left in the game when Cincinnati got the ball back. And Boomer and that offense were pretty deadly. Oh, yeah. But the defense stopped them, which, you know, not to bury the lead. But, you know, it was uh, – yeah, that, that, that play was something. It was, that's the way to go out. I, you know, I grew up reading um, sports books. And, you know, I don't, nobody goes to the library anymore. I don't even know why we have them. But – um, if you go to the sports sections, there's like these sports biographies. And I read sports biographies on Lou Gehrig and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and just go down the list. Basketball, football, you know, I mean, Jesse Owens, all these guys. And the one common denominator was at the end of their careers, it seemed like guys kind of hung on. And I always had told myself, you know, if you were ever to get to where you could play like that, you know, I ain't going to hang on. Like when I, when I went out, when I left the meeting to go to that press conference and announced I was going to retire, Bob McKittrick, our offensive line coach, comes up to me and goes, are you really doing this? And I said, yep. He goes, you know, you could play another three or four years. And I said, yeah, maybe so. Might not be the way I want to play, but. Maybe I could, but I'm taking this shot. I'm going out here. 
you know, because cool. I I just didn't want to hang on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's great. Well, and then and then and then you just carve out a 34-year career in broadcasting afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good uh uh follow-up. <laughs> so um well look, you know, I'm looking at my clock and I've taken up a lot of your time. So um so I, I can't tell you, Randy, how how uh how cool it was hearing about you know kind of growing up in California and and the high school football end track, which was very cool to hear about. And and obviously the you know the great UCLA years and, and the Hall of Fame career there. And then that you know incredible run with the 49ers, which you know, like I said, you know, kind of at the outset, first four or five years, maybe not quite as incredible. Um, and then obviously the last decade was just, you know, kind of unbelievable. So uh, I, I can't tell you, uh, thank you enough for coming on. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Hey, you know what? Something interesting. Yeah. Check check out. You ever check out that that California High School Hall of Fame? Uh, well, I was on some kind of page for it. It's go it's going to be at the Rose Bowl. We'll probably open it up later this this off season. Um, but look at that list. It's it, they started with the top hundred players and the top twenty five coaches. Okay. Um, and that's ever. And if you go through that list of players, it's like, it's crazy for all the stuff that, you know, you read about how football in Texas is so great. Now football in Florida is so great. There were guys on that list. I had no idea they, they lived in California, much less went to high school in California. Yeah. It's just, it's bizarre. Well, I mean, how many of the all time greats there were in the, in, in the California football? Well, one of the, it's probably the third guy I spoke to was Billy Kilmer speaking of UCLA. And I mean, I have told people, this is a guy who he he's like the Southern California player of the year in basketball. He is going to be drafted by the majors in baseball. He obviously goes to UCLA to play football, but he's basically a running back. He's in the hall of fame as a, as a halfback. Um, while he's at UCLA, John Wooden, who has not won a national title at this point, sees him playing in the gym and says, do you want to play basketball for me? So he does. So Billy Kilmer plays hoops at UCLA for John Wooden for a year. And then, and then goes in the NFL. And for the first four or five years, he's kind of a running back H back. He's he, then he finally, for the last, you know, whatever, 15 years, he's a really good quarterback who wins an MVP, but it's just, I mean, you just like, what an incredible athlete. <laughs> That's yeah. just he got, you know, he got in that car wreck. Right. And when he had that car wreck, that kind of ended his time as a halfback. And when he had to become a, had to become a, a quarterback, and worked out pretty well. His his part-time job turned out okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he was funny too. He even said, he's like, I would not have been on a roster. He's like, two things saved me. I would not have been on a roster except for our kicker could punt. So that saved a spot on the roster. So they kept one extra QB running back, whatever. So that created a spot for me. And then um, New Orleans became an expansion team. And he went there and, you know, for three or four years before uh, they, he went to Washington, he was there and he's like, totally changed my career. All of a sudden I could put up numbers and win some games. And, you know, they actually, believe it or not, weren't that bad for an expansion team, all things considered. And uh, it changed, you know, all of a sudden he had another 10 years in him. Uh, yep. So yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool story. Yep. Anyway, well, it's Randy, been, my, been my pleasure. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.